Well, again, good morning. It is a pleasure to continue in this series that we are calling Before Bethlehem. The reason we're calling it Before Bethlehem is because uh, during this Advent season, we are looking back, but we're looking back even further than that first Christmas. Because one of the things that we believe as Christians is that Jesus Christ is indeed God. And as God, that means that he didn't just first show up in that little manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that actually as God, he has been active throughout human history, bringing his plan of salvation into the world. And so what we've been doing and what we're going to be doing throughout this series is looking back at the Old Testament, looking at those stories from before Christ came in Bethlehem to ask, what was he doing there? To see moments where he actually shows up in the Old Testament because we believe that as we look at those stories, we're going to learn a couple of things about Jesus. First, we're going to learn about, a little bit more about his identity. Who is he really? Secondly, we're going to learn about his mission. Why did he come? And last but not least, we're going to learn about his calling for our lives, what it means to follow him. And so I think it's only right that as we prepare to look at another story from the Old Testament that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that in you, God reveals his character. That through you, we learn about your identity, your mission, and your calling. And so, Lord, this Advent season, as we're looking back at the Old Testament, seeing those moments where you show up, Lord, we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the message that you bring to us. And so, Lord, may you open our hearts. And I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning, I want to ask a question. When you think of Jesus, what pictures come to mind? Especially at Christmas time. When somebody says Jesus, kind of what images, pictures, paintings kind of come to your mind? Someone says, when you think about Jesus, what do you think of? What are some of those images? The manger, right? You know, Mary and Joseph, the animals gathered around, the shepherds and wise men and angels. And, and there's Jesus right in the middle, this little, cute little cuddly baby as his parents look on with wonder in their eyes. Or maybe sometimes we think about the adult Jesus, right? Think of Jesus as what? As the good shepherd, the one who, you know, is often depicted with a lamb over his shoulders or clutched tightly to his breast. The one who leads his people in gentleness. Or sometimes we think about Jesus with the children, right? Jesus says, let the little children come to me, and greeting them and teaching them. Maybe we think about Jesus as a teacher standing on the hillside preaching to his people. Maybe we think about the Last Supper. Jesus gathered together with his friends, the disciples, around that, that meal, that, that final meal that he takes before he's betrayed. Or maybe we think, you know, about images related to Easter, Jesus on a cross, or the empty tomb. These are often the images that we think of, right? When we, when we come to, to thinking about Jesus, these are the ones that usually pop into our heads. But this morning, I want to ask the question, how often do we think of Jesus a little bit more like this? Yeah, that's right. See, Christmas came early for Pastor Nick, all right? This is part of the reason people don't sit in the front row, all right? How often, though, do we think of Jesus bearing a sword and shield? 
How often do we think of Jesus and the image that pops into our head is of a warrior dressed for battle, head to toe in armor, with weapons drawn, ready to shout the battle cry. That's not often the image that we think of when we, come, when we think about Jesus, right? Certainly not at Christmas time. Certainly not during Advent. And yet this morning, as we look at our passage from Joshua chapter 5, that is exactly how Jesus shows up. I want us to take a closer look at this text for a moment. What we learn is that God has sent his people, the people of Israel, into the promised land. Now, this was land that he had promised uh, to Abraham, and he said, your descendants are going to inherit this land. They're going to come back here, and this will be theirs. And the story of Joshua takes place many, many years after that initial promise. You see, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt, and God delivers them from Egypt, from under their slavery to Pharaoh. They pass through the Red Sea um, by God's mighty hand, and Moses leads them to the promised land. Now, the first time they go to the promised land, they, they don't take it. They actually end up not believing God. They don't follow him. They don't end up taking the promised land. So they end up spending an entire generation wandering in the wilderness. But now here, in the book of Joshua, they have come back. They've come back to the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan River. And they are encamped by the mighty city of Jericho. And it's outside the walls of Jericho that Joshua, their general, their commander, their leader, has gone for a walk. He's gone for a walk probably to scout out the, um, the fortress that they're about to lay siege to. He's gone for a walk because he's a skilled warrior and he wants to get kind of a feel for uh, what the field of battle might hold for him and his troops. And it's on that walk that he encounters someone. This is what we read in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. It says, and when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? But the man replied, neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. See, Joshua encounters a man outside of Jericho, and when he asks, who are you, and are you for us or, for, or against us, he gets a really odd answer. The answer is no. And I have to imagine, like, as Joshua, he's just like, wait, did you not hear me? It was like, for or against. And he's like, no, neither. Because what he reveals about himself is he says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. And many scholars, when they look at this story and they consider who is this commander of the Lord's army, have said that this is Jesus. And here's the reason why. Because the moment this man identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army, we read that Joshua falls to his knees and worships him. And he says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the response of the commander of the Lord's army says, take off your sandals for this place on which you are standing is holy. Now that should make us think of something. It should make us think of that, of that story in Exodus where Moses stands before the burning bush and he says, who are you? And God speaks and he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. You see, if this commander of the Lord's army were an angel, the angel would have told Joshua, get up, do not worship me, for the Lord God alone is worthy of worship and praise. But instead, the commander of the Lord's army receives Joshua's worship. 
And he declares to him that where you are standing is holy ground, for I myself am holy. That's the implication. Joshua throws down his sword and shield before the commander of the Lord's army because the commander of the Lord's army is none other than the Lord himself. And scholars have said over and over again, and as we kind of said last week, again, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the podcast, okay? Because what we said last week is that in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says that no one has ever seen God the Father, only God the Son has made him known. And scholars have said that this commander of the Lord's army is none other than Jesus who shows up dressed for battle, with sword drawn, ready to lead his people in war against Jericho and the other cities of Canaan. And that should be pretty shocking. Because that's not often what we think of when we think of Jesus, right? Think of Jesus as this mild, as this little child in a manger. We think of him as this mild teacher. We don't think of him as somebody wielding a sword ready for battle. Someone dressed in armor. Someone who has now come to bring destruction and lay waste to cities. And if you're sitting there and you're like, I have a real problem with this image of Jesus, I want you to know you're in good company. I think there are a lot of people who have problems with this image of Jesus. I know that it was a problem that I had. That before becoming a Christian as a young man, I had a lot of issues with the book of Joshua. Because basically what we see in Joshua 5 and 6 is God is saying, I'm going to wage war against these people. I'm going to lead my promised people in war in the Holy Land. And I'm going to give them the promised land back. And I remember as a, as a young man who uh, wasn't yet a, a Christian, I remember saying, you know, this is part of the reason I have a problem with the Old Testament. It's probably the part of the reason I have a problem with Joshua, the book of Joshua, because this is, the, this is how crusades get started, right? People look back at books like Joshua and they, they see that as an excuse to take up the sword and to engage in violence and to engage in warfare. How, how can you possibly reconcile the, the peaceful, the loving, the merciful Jesus of the New Testament with the God of the Old Testament? How, this just doesn't make sense when you read stories like this. But what I want to argue this morning is that when you take a closer look at Joshua chapter 5 and chapter 6, what you get is a microcosm, a tiny story that tells us about the grander story of how God is bringing justice into the world. And in order to see that, we need to look a little bit earlier on in the tale. We need to go back to Genesis chapter 15, a passage that we read earlier in our service this morning. Because it's in Genesis chapter 15 that God first promises the land to Abraham. And it's really interesting what God tells him. You see, Abraham was a nomad. He was living in the land of Canaan. And God appears to him in Genesis 15 verse 13 and says this, He says, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. He's telling Abraham, one day your children are going to be slaves in Egypt. But then he says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And here he's talking about the exodus and their liberation under the leadership of Moses. But then notice what he says, and he says, You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. See, right here, there's something very, very instructive that God is telling Abraham. 
He says, yes, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, but now is not the time. And the reason why is, he says, it's because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, many people have said, well, what does that, what does that mean? Well, the Amorites were one of many people groups living in the land of Canaan. They had fortified cities, and they were kind of organized as kings of city-states. And many archaeologists who studied the Old Testament period will, and studied kind of the period between Abraham and Joshua have noted several things about the Canaanites. First and foremost, they were a very warlike people. The, the people and the leaders of these city-states would often march their armies out to take captive and to destroy the nomadic peoples in the area around them that they would basically find weaker peoples and weaker nations, and they would come against them with the sword to destroy them, to steal their wealth, and to carry their wives and children off into slavery. This was kind of a habit. They would have farming season, and then they would have war. That was basically it. You know, in Chicago, we have two seasons, you know, summer and uh, basically winter and construction, right? In Canaan, they had two seasons. That was planting season and destruction season. They would go out and they would destroy weaker nations. But furthermore, when you look at Canaanite religion, the religion that these people practiced in that land, it gets even more horrific because they were pagan peoples. And when harvest time came, they would often sacrifice to the god Moloch. God Moloch, he was kind of like the all-powerful god in their religion. He was the one who was their warrior king, but he's also the one who would kind of promise fertility to their crops. And uh, in those seasons, what they would do is they would take their children and they would throw their children alive into a fiery furnace at the altar of Moloch. In fact, ancient accounts have said that their priests would play their music louder so that the people didn't have to hear the screams of their own children. We are talking about a people who are bloodthirsty from beginning to end. And what I find so instructive about what God is saying in Genesis chapter 15, when he first promises the promised land to Abraham, uh, what he says is he says, but they will not come back here until the sin of the Amorites has reached its full measure. It says, Abraham, I'm going to give them this land, but not now. I'm going to give it to them in my timing. I'm going to give it to them at a time when I can send them back home, but not just to take the land, but to send them as agents of justice in a wicked and broken world. See, this is the first thing that we need to understand from this story. The first thing that this story actually teaches us is that God is a God of justice. He is not blind to wickedness in this, uh, on this earth. That when he sees stronger nations eating weaker nations, when he sees adults sacrificing children, when he sees injustice and wickedness running rampant, he does something about it. He doesn't stand idly by, but he brings justice. But what I love about this story is he's saying, but I bring that justice in my timing. And I bring it at a time when, when it's no longer possible to extend mercy. See, when he promised this land to Abraham, he basically gave the people of Canaan 400 years. 400 years to turn from their wickedness, to turn from their evil ways. And he says, it's gotten so bad, it's gotten so terrible, I have to do something about it. I must bring justice into this world. And so Joshua, now is the time I am sending you. That's really the story here. He's saying, I'm a God of justice. And I hear the cries of children 
and the cries of the weak, the cries of the poor and the oppressed, and I am going to put an end to their weeping by punishing the nations that are oppressing them. And I will bring that justice in my timing and in my way. That's the first lesson we get from this story. Second lesson we get from this story, though, is how God does it. How he actually brings his justice. Because I, the, the scene continues, and it gets kind of interesting what God says to Joshua next. Because after telling him, you know, uh, take off your sandals and worship me, they, they kind of have a chat about the battle plan. And it's in uh, chapter 6 that we read something kind of interesting. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred against the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of a funny scene. Okay, because here's Joshua. This is a seasoned commander. He's been in battles before. He's, he's, he's fought in, uh, along with armies. Okay, he's a general. And God is basically saying, hey, do you see that city over there, the one with the huge walls and like the iron gates? Joshua's like, yeah. He's just like, look, I've delivered it into your hand. And I'm sure Joshua's standing there saying, I don't see how. Because it says very clearly that the gates are barred. No one can go out or uh, come in. He's looking at this fortress that looks fine. Like things are going great and God's like, it's yours. And he's just like, what? And I think often many of us in this world, that's where we wrestle with God's justice. Because we look at our world and we see injustice seems to have the upper hand. We look at the world and we see wicked people who seem to be doing fine. Dishonest and selfish and greedy people who've twisted laws to their own benefit seem to be sitting pretty in their towers in the sky. We see people with bigger armies going into weaker nations and destroying capital cities and putting people to their, um, uh, forcing people to obey their rules and their laws. We see tyrants and warlords denying food to starving people in order to fill their own bellies. And we could very easily sit there like Joshua and, and the Lord saying, hey, I've come to bring justice. And we're like, how? I don't see it. And oftentimes, this is a charge that many people bring against Christianity. They say, I don't see how God could be good and loving and allow this wickedness and injustice to continue. If God were really good and loving, wouldn't he do something about it? If God were, were truly good and loving, wouldn't he stop this injustice? In fact, there's many people who said, that's the reason I actually can't be a Christian is because I, I, I see the love of God, but I see the brokenness of this world, and I just don't know how those two things are reconciled. Which is why I find what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, so instructive. You see, Lewis was a, a, a diehard atheist, a, a very ardent atheist, a very smart guy, a professor at Oxford, uh, didn't believe in God. And yet, one of, the, and, and one of the reasons why he didn't believe in God is he said, because if God is good and there's wickedness in the world, then either God isn't good or God is, uh, is not powerful enough to do anything about it. But then this is what he writes in Mere Christianity. I love this line. He says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But I had to stop and ask myself, how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? 
If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who is supposed to be a, a part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it? See, what Lewis realized is that his very notion of justice assumed a judge. He said, for me to have any idea that there's just and unjust must mean that there is actually a judge who can bring justice into our world. Because if there isn't a divine judge laying down laws, then it really is might makes right. And you can't talk about justice and injustice in any meaningful way. Because all justice is is whoever's the strongest gets to decide. He's like, that's not justice. That's just power. All you're left with is what Nietzsche says. Basically, every, every truth claim is just an appeal to power. Lewis says, the very idea that I believe in something called justice and that I think God should do something about it points to the fact that he exists. It's not an argument against God. It's actually an argument for God. The very fact that our hearts cry out for justice shows that there is one who can bring it. And one of the things that God is saying is he's saying, I know that you don't see it. I know it doesn't look like it, but you can be certain of this. I am bringing my justice into the world. I will do it in my timing and in my way, but it will come. In fact, it's a promise that Jesus himself points us to. It's a promise that we find in Scripture, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Because when we look at the end of the story and we look at Revelation chapter 19, we get an image of Jesus that now, in light of Joshua 5 and 6, should sound kind of familiar. It says, I saw heaven standing open and before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. For people who say Jesus doesn't care about justice, I point them right here. Because what Jesus says is he says, there is a day when I am coming back, and when I come back, I will be arrayed for battle. I will bear the sword against all the injustice and wickedness of this world, and it will be wiped from the face of the planet. Which, quite honestly, although we sit here and we're just like, oh, that sounds so terrifying. If you are a person living in a, in a land of oppression, who's watched as your wives and your sisters and your daughters have been raped, who's seen wicked people spill the blood of the innocent and laugh, who've watched tyrants and warlords steal food from children to fill their own bellies, then this idea that Jesus is coming and he's going to deal with it is really, really good news. God is saying, look, I am not blind to the injustice in this world. And there will come a day when I will come and I will wipe all the evil and wickedness from the face of the planet and there will only be peace 
there will only be justice. There will only be life and light in my presence, for I come as your commander and your king to deliver you. The question we have to ask ourselves is really the question that I think the commander of the Lord's army turned on its head. Joshua asked the commander, he said, are you for us or for our enemies? The commander says, neither. I'm the one in charge. And the implication of the question is, so are you for me or against me? People say, why is God delaying? Well, the answer is this. It's kind of the same answer he gave to Abraham all those years ago. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 10 Peter says this, Don't forget this one thing, dear friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. See, the reason why God delays is to give you and I more time. To ask ourselves the question, when God comes in his justice, can we stand? He tells us that when his justice comes, everything that's done on the face of the earth will be laid bare. It will be brought to light. And I have to ask the question, I think part of the reason we have a problem with God's justice is because of the fact that we know we're all guilty. That when he comes in his justice and lays our lives bare, all the secret thoughts of our hearts, every selfish action we've ever taken, we know that we stand before the judgment seat. And the question we have to wrestle with this morning is, is what do we do? What is the hope that the commander of the Lord's army can bring to the people who are themselves guilty of erecting walls against him? What hope does the commander of the Lord's army bring to a world that has turned its back on him and who wield the sword against one another? Well, the answer here, too, is just an amazing answer. Because the answer that we get from Scripture is Jesus says, now is the time of mercy. When he begins his his, uh, ministry on earth, Jesus actually says this. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, the commander of the Lord's army has indeed come. He stands on the outskirts of our cities and he says, now is a time of mercy. The kingdom of God is come near. So repent and believe the good news. His invitation is like Joshua, when the commander of the Lord's army comes, don't draw your sword against him. Rather, drop your weapons and fall to your knees. Lay your crowns at his feet. For there will come a day when every wall will fall. And the plea from this text is that the walls of our hearts would come down before the walls of our lives crumble. The commander of the Lord's army says, I am coming. When I do, I will bring justice, but I come now as a herald to plea with you. And for those of you who say, but I'm guilty. I deserve the sword. The answer that the commander of the Lord's army first gives is he says, then I will take the sword in your place. 
the first thing that the commander of the Lord's army does is he takes the sword and he turns it on himself. That's why Isaiah 53.5 says this. It says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. See, the first thing we learn in this text is first and foremost, who is Jesus according to Joshua 5? Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army. The second thing that we learn is that he comes to bring justice on earth. The third question then is, so then what's his calling? Well, his first calling is fall to your knees and worship him. As Joshua did, fall to your knees and worship him. Don't stand against the commander, but if you long for justice, if you desire to see righteousness come on the earth, then you need to reckon with the king who is bringing his kingdom. Come and adore him. The second question we have to wrestle with is, so what's our role, though? I mean, if, if we follow this king, if we follow this commander, if we follow his rule, what does that mean for us in bringing justice in the world? Which is why I want to look at one last detail in Joshua 5 and 6. I find it funny what the Lord says to Joshua about how they're going to take the city. He says, I want you to march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone goes straight in. So I find so interesting about the story is the only person who has a sword drawn in Joshua 5 and 6 is who? It's the commander. He's the only one with drawn sword. The rest of them, he's the, Joshua's like, so what's the battle plan? He's just like, I want you all to walk around. You're going to walk around in circles and the priests will lead you blowing trumpets. And this is a very interesting detail. See, trumpets announce the arrival of a king. Furthermore, priests are representatives of God. And what he's saying, he's like, you're not going to raise the sword at all. Your job is simply to proclaim that the king has come as his representatives in the world. And you see, that's exactly what we are called to do as well. That when it comes to pronouncing the kingdom of God, we go as heralds and as priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. See, our role as the people of God in this unjust world is to bring the announcement of the kingdom in word and in deed. To not take up the sword, to not pursue vengeance and call it justice, but rather to lay the sword down and in word and deed announce the kingdom has come. To live lives that point people to that kingdom. And to give our world a foretaste of what the justice and righteousness of God looks like. And the way that we do that is we do that in the ways that God has called us to do that. Some of us are responsible for passing and enforcing laws, passing and enforcing justice. We call them police. Some of us are responsible for defending the weak with the sword. We call them soldiers. And some of us are called to pass and enforce laws and hand out sentences. We call them lawmakers and judges. 
And for those of us who serve in those professions, we do have a calling to bring the foretaste of the justice of God into our world, but we do so recognizing that we're not the ones in charge, that we serve at the pleasure of the commander, which is why those of you who are policemen or those of you who serve in the military, those of you who are lawyers or judges or lawmakers, always consider this question, do the laws that I pass and the laws I enforce reflect the justice of God? Do they defend the rights of the weak? Do they provide dignity for all? And when I take up the sword, as I am often called to do, do I do so with a desire to defend and not to destroy? For the rest of us, we announce the kingdom and justice in the places where we live, work, and play. We do that by, in our workplace, by treating our coworkers with dignity, by asking the question, are the products that we're making and the things that we're selling actually promote human flourishing? Do we do so in a way that's livable for people by providing them with a, with a living wage? Do I ensure that the policies at our workplace provide dignity to those who serve here and that our products are for the good and the benefit of the world? In our neighborhoods, do we look around us and say, are there those people who are oppressed, those people who go without, those people who are heavy and burdened, that we can bring the light of God's justice and mercy? Do we look for practical and tangible ways to right the inequalities caused by greed in our world? and to do so in a tangible, loving, servant-hearted action toward our neighbors. In our school places, do we, do we ensure that every single child has an opportunity to learn, that they will be treated with dignity and respect? See, that's what it means to be priests who proclaim the kingdom of God. We give the world a foretaste of the justice that Christ brings. We don't take up the sword in vengeance. We pursue the kingdom by announcing it in word and in deed. And actually, that's something that we do every Christmas season. Every time we sing that hymn, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Listen, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Jesus Christ is the commander who brings justice and he calls us to worship him and to announce the kingdom in word and deed until he comes again in glory. Take a moment now to pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you alone wield the sword, that it's your job to judge, not ours. And so we ask, Lord, that as we go about our daily lives, we would go about our daily lives in a way that points people to the justice of the kingdom that in our given jobs and vocations, in the places where we live, work, and play, we would be ambassadors of good news to all. That where we see those oppressed, we would speak up on their behalf, where we would fight for them. Lord, where we see inequalities, we, Lord, we pray that we would be generous and provide for those in need. And Lord, in all things, that we would pray that your, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And until that day comes, Lord, we pray that many would know your mercy and fall before you in worship and sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Amen.